At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about the coming eviction crisis with Megan Day. But first, although the United States is the country that spends the most on healthcare, it's also the one with the most cases of COVID-19 and the most deaths. And COVID-19 is spreading fast. As of last week, the worst per capita outbreak in the world was in Arizona, followed by Florida. Why is that? How come the country that spends the most on healthcare is the sickest? For comment, we turn to Greg Gonsalves. He's co-director of the Global Health Justice Partnership and an assistant professor of epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health. He writes regularly for The Nation about the pandemic, and he's also the winner of a MacArthur Genius Fellowship. Greg Gonsalves, welcome to the program. Thank you, John. Well, first of all, let's talk about the spike in new cases and in deaths. In the United States, almost three and a half million people have been infected with the virus. At least 135,000 have died. The chart of new cases shows a steeply rising curve. That looks scary to me. You're a professor of epidemiology. Does it look scary to you? It should be scary to everyone. Um, you know, if you look around the world at the trajectory of SARS-CoV-2 infections, COVID-19 disease, you've seen that there are many countries that have been able to sort of suppress the virus through a comprehensive lockdown, social distancing measures, mask wearing, testing, tracing, and isolating, all the things that um, are in the sort of traditional toolbox for public health approaches to diseases like this. We have been unable really to do any of it here in the United States. Uh, to be fair, certain states, uh, particularly in the northeastern parts of California, have been able to do it. But we really couldn't sustain it for more than a few weeks in the U.S. before governors and our president were saying, we have to liberate Virginia, we need to liberate Michigan. And so I remember talking to reporters in April and March about what was going on in Florida and Arizona saying, you know, they're not locking down yet. They're not locking down. They're waiting too long. They're making too many exceptions for the kinds of businesses that can remain open. Uh, they're reopening too soon. They're, they're being too quick to jump the gun and, and um, open up, even though their cases aren't even down, even though they didn't have testing in place. You could see this happening a mile away. Nobody's surprised about what's happening, perhaps except the governors of those states. Um, infectious disease experts who work in those states knew what was going on, sounded the alarm bells, and nobody listened. And so we have a pandemic out of control in the United States. Just because Arizona and Florida and Texas and some other states are sort of raging right now doesn't mean it's not going to come back to states that, that are sort of quiescent, like New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and others. Um, if we can't extinguish it everywhere, we're not going to extinguish it anywhere in the United States. So the new cases right now are surging, as you say, in Arizona, Florida, Texas, South Carolina. This has led many Democrats to comfort themselves with the idea that this is all caused by Republicans, 
by Republican incompetence and rushed reopenings. The idea is once the Democrats regain power, once Biden takes the oath on January 20th and the Democrats take control of the Senate, sanity will return to health care policy. Is that the way you see it? Well, we have to talk in relative terms. So first of all, I think the roots of the, the failure of the American response to COVID-19 are far uh, predate President Trump's arrival on the scene. Our fractured uh, healthcare system, our shredded safety net is a result of bipartisan sort of attacks on the welfare state, which many European countries, Australia and New Zealand, relied on to cushion the fall from all the sort of epidemic control measures that have had to be inflicted on our our, our populations. Um, Our healthcare system has been a a patchwork of private uh, efforts, um, and even the ACA, the guiding principle behind the ACA's establishment was to keep it a private sector uh, model of healthcare. So we got to a pandemic uh, where we had a a patchwork of a healthcare system and a shambles of a safety net and weren't able to sort of cope. Did the incompetence and the sort of probably malign intent of the Trump administration make things a lot worse? Yes. But to get us back on track isn't just a Joe Biden presidency. It's um, what my friend Amy Kuczynski and I have called the New Deal for Public Health. We've let public health erode in this country for decades under both Republicans and Democrats. All the disproportionate impact we've seen in communities of color, African-Americans, Latinos, Asian-Americans, is based on on decades and decades of neglect. You know, we, we look at the, the epidemic of police violence in our country, but if you look at life expectancy for African-Americans, there are 84,000 deaths estimated each year in excess of, of what uh, their white counterparts experience from all causes in the United States. So um, police violence may be killing African-Americans, but the lack of reasonable health care access and public health in communities hardest hit by COVID have been killing them long before 2020. So Joe Biden doesn't just have to hit the reset switch on the epidemic response, but how we think about the safety net, uh, how we think about health care, and get us beyond the sort of stale debates of the 80s and 90s about shrinking the role of government and, and uh, privatizing our, our key common goods, which are public health and healthcare sectors in the United States. So what is to be done right now? You've written recently at thenation.com that we need something like the ACT UP campaign now. Remind us what ACT UP did and, and what it achieved. So ACT UP was formed by a coalition of many different kinds of people, lots of LGBTQ people, in the first decade of the AIDS epidemic, when we had another president who wanted to ignore a new uh, pandemic sweeping the world. Um, Ronald Reagan didn't say the word HIV AIDS until seven years into his presidency, almost at the end of his second term. Um, And so ACT UP were a group of men and women who took matters into their own hands and demonstrated in front of the White House, in front of drug companies, took over the New York Stock Exchange, um, took over the Food and Drug Administration to basically compel political action by a government that uh, on local, state, and federal levels wanted to see or couldn't care less if, if gay men, people of color, sex workers, people who use drugs died of HIV in the, in, in the 80s and 90s. I don't think we have time to wait for Joe Biden's appearance at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. We're going to have hundreds of thousands of deaths over the next few months. The way things are going in the South and West right now and the sort of new states that are being added to the roster of those who are having increasing cases means, you know, we could top 200,000 deaths before the end of the summer. And that would be, that would be the, the low bar, I think, for what we can expect. So we don't have to wait to wait till January 2021 
means waiting for a lot of people to get sick and a lot of people to die. So we need to sort of put pressure on both the Republicans in the White House and at the State House and at, at, our, at city levels, but also the Democrats who have been obsessed with sort of tactical ways of approaching every problem since, you know, since the Clinton administration and not thinking boldly and broadly about what we could do today to, to change the situation. They ask for what they think they can achieve, not what we need. So we need to sort of put a little bit of fire under their collective butts. ACT UP was a, a campaign of disruption. I have to point out the other side already has a campaign of disruption. You know, I, I don't think there's another country in the world where demonstrators against public health measures, you know, wave guns around and invade state capitals to prevent public health legislation from being taken up. Well, first of all, if you look at the genesis of the sort of liberate protests, a lot of them were sort of astroturfed by gun rights groups and conservative groups, some of which were tied to Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos's family. Um, so so I, I, I don't consider that a real movement in terms of the social movements that have world American politics over the past, you know, two and a half decades. Yes, there's been economic anxiety about the lockdowns, and I understand them, but the, the, the protests to liberate states had no sort of real policy goal except to sort of fling open the doors to, to businesses and which led us to the path we're on now. One of the things that's sort of inspiring is the Black Lives Matter protests. We know Black Lives Matter has been around for several years, but the moment that George Floyd was killed, they were able to mobilize the largest social movement in American history. Tens of millions of people participated in protests against police violence that had never done anything like that before. And we're starting to see reforms take place at the local and state level on police violence that, I don't know, six months ago we wouldn't have even considered. We've seen the, the national debate on race change uh, quickly over the, the course of the past few months where Confederate statues and uh, monuments to, to, to champions of white supremacy are coming down all over the country. So yes, we have a, a disruptor in chief in the White House, but it doesn't mean we need to, we who care about the, the fate of this country in the midst of the pandemic can sit silently and sort of wait for Joe Biden to save us. Public health people generally like to think about you know, numbers and figures and the technical details of, of how to deal with epidemics. But we're in a political crisis as much as we are in a public health crisis right now. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the example of Black Lives Matter. Uh, we record our show here in L.A. Black Lives Matter not only has had, you know, huge marches, tens of thousands of people down the main streets. They had a thousand people demonstrating outside the mayor's house. Up to that point, he'd been talking about expanding the police budget by 6%. After a 1,000 people went to his house, he announced he had changed his mind about the police budget and he would cut $150 million. So really militant, big, surprising demonstrations can have a big effect. Yeah, I mean, Erica Chenoweth, who I think is now at Harvard, you know, said she's been a historian, a sociologist, a social scientist of nonviolent protest, and nonviolent protest works. It works. It it gave us the civil, you know, the civil rights acts. It gave us women's suffrage. It gave us gay marriage. Um, it gave us a whole host of social reforms you've seen in this in this country since the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era to the New Deal and to the Great Society. And so, we've sort of offloaded the responsibility for civic life onto our politicians and to our our media pundits. Um, I think we need to sort of re-engage with activism in a way that, um, at least for my community, we sort of, we, we jettisoned after, you know, new AIDS drugs came on the market in 1996 and gay marriage became the law of the land. There's a lot, there's a lot of us 
out there who have these skills and have been veterans of movements from Black Lives Matter to the the older folks with ACT UP, even the feminist movement from the 70s. There's a lot of us out there who can be pulled back into action along with the many, many young people who are out on the streets today uh, arguing for, for climate justice and for Black Lives Matter uh, and for a host of other things like the Dreamers uh, in, in this country. So to quote you from The Nation, we need an immediate, massive, sustained and coordinated national emergency campaign of disruption what should we be demanding? Well, the, the, the first thing is that we need to hit reset on this pandemic response. I don't know what's going to tip Donald Trump into saying the right thing, but we need to, to get people to start staying at home again, particularly in these states hardest hit by the, the, the virus. Mask wearing 100%. We, he needs to invoke the Defense Production Act to scale up supplies and reagents for testing, all the PPE we need. We need to think about how we're going to deal with these hot spots of infection like jails, nursing homes, and meatpacking plants, making them safe uh, by, by decarcerating in the jails, by trying to figure out how to ensure safety in, in working conditions for, for people across the country. There's, there's a whole laundry list of things we can do. There are millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars going into the Biden campaign right now in electoral politics, really important. But if you could put a little bit of that money and organizational expertise uh, in the service of direct action now, um, you might get the attention of people like Mitch McConnell uh, and Donald Trump. I'm not hoping for much, but you know, right now uh, they don't feel much pain or misery from their from their choices, and the heat needs to be turned up. You know, if if a thousand people go outside of the Los Angeles mayor's house and he changes his mind, maybe Mitch McConnell should have a a, a nightly visiting brigade of a thousand people till November 2020. One other thing I, I would raise is the fact that more than 5 million people lost their health insurance in the last month because they lost their jobs. It's also on our, our agenda. I mean, there's certain things that, you know, Republicans are not going to submit to, kicking and screaming. But, you know, lots of things have been discussed over the past few months that you would have never thought of before. You know, the Republicans talking about the need to keep people on health insurance um, who have been opponents of the ACA. We've talked about, you know, short term, ex we've talked about expanding unemployment insurance. And so I think this epidemic has been a rolling, disa rolling disaster for the country. You know, the health insurance losses are making a whole set of people now vulnerable. You know, the other point I would make is that, you know, we're now seeing that the manifestations of COVID-19 disease could last for years in people's lives, respiratory or neurological or uh, pulmonocardiac complications of, of, of disease that last over time. And so we may be seeing health, health impacts of this for years to come. And so, you know, we have to go beyond the sort of patchwork healthcare system that the ACA sort of improved upon. Um, and I know we were talking about Medicare for all and, and these expansions of healthcare before the epi epidemic hit. But if, if anything has showed you that employer-based health insurance is not a great idea, it's the epidemic. When millions lose jobs, they lose their health insurance as well. And it's simply not sustainable as a way to give people what they need to keep themselves alive. Last question. I wanted to ask what, what you think about uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Uh, right now, he's the most trusted man in America on the subject of the pandemic. But Mike Davis argued in The Nation recently that he's, in effect, serving as an apologist for the administration's criminal incompetence. He's doing more harm than good by standing behind Pence while Pence says, quote, we slowed the spread, we flattened the curve, we saved lives, close quote. I read the Trump administration has been refusing to allow Fauci to do interviews or give lectures or take part in public discussions. 
People are starting to say it would be better for all of us if Fauci resigned in protest and spoke out as an independent person rather than remaining a Trump administration official. What do you think? I actually decided to write about a little bit about this for my own column this upcoming week for The Nation. But, um, you know, I've known Tony for 30 years um, and he is a consummate insider. He has never gone after a president, Republican or Democrat. We've wanted him to from Reagan to Clinton to Bush to Obama. We've asked for him to sort of to take them on. He works on the inside and he tries to make change in that manner. You know, he's tried to hew to facts as closely as he can. There's a now opposition style campaign against him coming out of the White House because he's speaking a little bit too much truth. Mike Davis may think like Tony can sort of do this sort of grand gesture of, you know, you're all out of order and sort of, you know, sort of point fingers across the, the, the scene in DC about who's to blame. Um, but then his influence is completely gone, right? And so as an activist myself, we all have different roles to play. I think Tony's a voice of reason with the administration. And, you know, there's a bunch of really dangerous folks in there spouting pseudoscience and, and, and falsities around vaccines, about hydroxychloroquine, on everything you could think about. And having Tony there on the inside right now is probably important. Would it be emotionally satisfying for him to sort of let loose and, and rain hellfire down on the Trump administration? It would be, but that would be the, the sort of final act in a long career um, because he wouldn't be able to really have any influence within the administration after that. And I think he's you know close to 80 years old and I don't think you're gonna teach that old dog new tricks. Greg Gonsalves writes about the COVID pandemic for The Nation. Read them at thenation.com. Thank you, Greg. Thanks, John. We're heading for an eviction crisis. The direct cash payments of the CARES Act expire on July 31st. And right now, Republicans in Congress are not renewing it or anything like it. That means millions of people won't be able to pay their rent on August 1st, and hundreds of thousands of landlords can evict them unless Congress acts right away. For comment, we turn to Megan Day. She's a staff writer at Jacobin and co-author of Bigger Than Bernie, how we go from the Sanders campaign to democratic socialism. We reached her today at home in L.A. Hi, Megan. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Well, first of all, please explain how the CARES Act worked. Yeah, so CARES was a very complicated piece of legislation. It had a bunch of different aspects, a bunch of moving parts. But for our purposes, what we're talking about today is the fact that it authorized a one-time stimulus check to most Americans. You probably got it. Um, and then it authorized on top of that weekly unemployment payments of $600 per week. And that was on top of also state unemployment benefits. And that has tided millions of Americans over during this turbulent time. In many ways, it's actually, um, I think, helpfully and positively masked the depth of the economic crisis that we're actually in. And the problem with that, of course, that's a good thing, but the problem with it is that once it expires, we're about to realize the trouble that we're in. Mostly the important part was the direct cash payments, but wasn't there also a moratorium on evictions? So CARES authorized a moratorium on evictions from most federally and publicly subsidized housing 
you know, HUD, Section 8, and so on. And that is really critical, and a lot of people have benefited from that. But of course, most renters are simply rent their place on the private market. Some places have never put eviction moratoriums in place, but there are several states and cities that have placed moratoriums on evictions. That, again, has helped tide people over, but many of them are under threat of expiration or they've already expired. So, for example, just in the last few weeks, we've seen a tug of war in New York over whether or not this um, this eviction moratorium was really going to expire. And, of course, housing rights groups estimated that if it did expire, 60,000 cases were going to turn up in New York City's housing courts virtually overnight. That's been um, that's been halted for now, but it's very much on the chopping block. And meanwhile, in California, Governor Newsom authorized local governments to place a moratorium on evictions if they want to, and several cities have, including here in Los Angeles. But of course, it's completely up to municipal discretion. I should say also that lifting these eviction moratoriums in the places that have had them is one of the levers that cities and states can pull to force the economy to reopen if they want to do that, because people who were previously scared to go into work are now more scared to lose their homes. And this dissolves resistance and changes popular opinion about reopening the economy. So you're seeing that in places like Texas, which did have an, a statewide eviction moratorium, and the Texas Supreme Court, which of course Texas state government wants to reopen, right? So they went ahead and they um, they repealed that eviction moratorium. And you started to see in cities like Houston, suddenly uh, all of these cases started heading to the housing court. So it's, it's a pretty scary prospect. Just to stick with the CARES Act for one more minute, how successful were the direct uh, payments? Did it help enough people? Uh, they were extraordinarily successful. So researchers at Columbia University have estimated that an additional 12 million people would have been plunged into poverty without these CARES Act unemployment payments and the stimulus check. And then there was a separate study actually that found, if you can believe this, that poverty rates actually fell during April and May, due in large part to the fact that the unemployment assistance, which isn't much, exceeds what most of the eligible recipients were earning because the people who are most likely to lose their jobs are working in low wage sectors. And I think that's more than anything, it's an indictment on the low wages in our society. So I think to your second question, I think it could have helped more people through a greater variety of mechanisms, but it's certainly been critical to keeping people afloat during this coronavirus pandemic and during the consequent economic shutdown. So right now, the House has passed a successor bill. They call it the HEROES Act, but the Republican-controlled Senate has done nothing If nothing comes out of Congress in the next two weeks, what will happen on August 1st? The mass procession of um, eviction claims in housing courts. It's going to be total chaos. I think it's important to stop and look at who rents and how vulnerable they are. I mean, this is a this is in in a double or even a triple crisis for renters. So renters are obviously they're giving their money over to a landlord on a monthly basis in order to have a roof over their head. In addition to that, they are in this situation for the most part because they can't afford a home, which means that they're already low wage workers and low wage workers are exactly the people who are on the chopping block when it comes to unemployment from the uh, shutdown. And then if you want to add a third crisis to this, and I do think that we should, 
These are also renters, low-wage workers are the same people who are least likely to have decent health insurance to begin with. And they're also the people who, when they lose their employment, are being thrown off of their employer-sponsored health insurance if they had decent employment, decent insurance to begin with. And so, you know, now they're, they're in a situation where they're either uninsured or they're paying out of pocket for um, medical care in the middle of a public health crisis. So this is a triple crisis for working class people. And um, evictions are only the tip of the iceberg. But I do think that we should be paying a specific attention to evictions because of how intense the crisis actually looks from a renter's perspective. So there's an analysis that found that 6.7 million households have simultaneously experienced job loss in the last few months and are rent burden. Rent burden means that they're paying 30% of their household income to cover rent. But in addition to that, or of these, 3.4 million households are severely rent burdened, which means that they're paying 50% of their income to cover rent. And they've also, you know, and have also been impacted by job loss. So that means that if there's, if the eviction moratorium is lifted and or if the unemployment benefits cease, these people are going to get thrown out into the street. I mean, we're looking at potentially, potentially millions of people actually facing homelessness. So what's in this Democratic bill that passed the House, the HEROES Act? How, how good is it? Does it do enough? Well, it's pretty good. I mean, it's not it's not perfect, and I'll explain that in a moment, but I, I also don't want to let the perfect be the enemy of the good in a situation like this one because people are, you know, living hand to mouth at the moment. So it extends unemployment through uh, January 31st, 2021, which is critical. It also provides rental and mortgage assistance, which, you know, I think that uh, the eviction moratoria are, are probably better. A federal, a federal eviction moratorium that didn't just apply to federally subsidized housing would probably be preferable, but still, rental and mortgage assistance is nothing to sneeze at. And then on top of that, actually, they added in a debt collection freeze, which frankly, that's not going to make it through the Republican-controlled Senate. Um, but that is something that the American working class desperately needs. So it was a relief in some ways to see it in there, though I highly doubt that it'll pass through. Um, it also provides a bigger stimulus check. So under the new legislation, each member of a household would receive $1,200, and that includes children. It's up to a $6,000 per household max. And it sets, it sets aside $200 billion for hazard pay for essential workers, which is also something that progressives and those on the left were very insistent uh, be provided to essential workers. So it's it, it's full of good steps in the right direction. And, and all of that stuff that I mentioned is necessary to implement. A lot of it is probably not going to be implemented because Republicans are salivating to cut this thing down uh, as much as they possibly can. At the same time, it's actually not enough also, even though it's, it's good and we need to pass it. So Bernie Sanders and others have been talking about the necessity of $2,000 a month at least for every American and not another one-time payment. And this is not just for unemployed people. This is just this, this is just sensible for the cost of living to tide us over through this difficult time. We need cash infusions into the American working class in order to keep everything afloat. Essentially, we're trying to 
freeze the economy instead of sort of closing it down and opening it back up in this bizarre oscillating fashion and allowing people to get sick and die while we're doing that. We want to actually use our public money to put a hold on the economy, to freeze it in place until we can get a vaccine. And this is the kind of strategy that Bernie Sanders and others on the left have been pushing for in Congress. And it's not going anywhere. It seems like, you know, that has that idea has been uh, thrown out. And now we're proceeding with this pretty good, but uh, not still inadequate bill, which even even in its inadequate state is going to be whittled down by Senate Republicans. So what do Republicans in the Senate want? Surely they understand that direct cash payments provide a stimulus to business. Well, Mitch McConnell and other Senate Republicans have declared the HEROES Act a dead on arrival in the Senate, and they've called it a liberal wish list and said that it's, you know, it's uh, all pork fat and this and that, uh, like they always do for pretty much everything. To answer your question, this is one of the puzzling things about the modern Republican Party. It, it's it's so much a party of capital that it sometimes bends over backwards to make sure that the segments of the capitalist class that are Republican aligned have everything they want whenever they want it, which is actually a danger to the, the entire capitalist system, right? It sort of threatens to undermine and capsize the capitalist system. And of course, the Democrats are more subtle about this. The Democrats are essentially devoted to the project of maintaining capitalism, which requires concessions, right? And for those of us on the socialist left, obviously, we think that we can transcend capitalism. But you can see that there are three wildly different approaches. And the Republican approach is a, a moral, more or less suicidal pro-capitalist approach. I want to talk explicitly about the COVID-19 pandemic, which you've kind of mentioned in passing a couple of times. We know that it's out of control, especially in the states that opened up, as we say. We know that Black people and Latinos and poor people in general are much more likely to get the virus and die from it than white people. Uh, what's the relationship between these direct cash payments and the spread of COVID-19? Without the cash payments, without adequate cash payments, and then additionally, like, like we talked about before, the eviction moratoria, people are going to be clamoring to go back to work. People who are scared of you know, getting coronavirus and dying of COVID-19 are still going to be clamoring to go back to work because they, under the threat of economic coercion, their resistance is going to melt away. So this is going to cause, obviously, everything to open up prematurely. That's going to cause more contact between individuals. That's going to cause people to get sick. It's going to cause people to die. And in many cases, it's not just going to affect, you know, it's not going to affect people equally across the board. In many cases, the same people who are who were threatened by eviction if they didn't scrounge up some money somehow are precisely the people who are going to be put into contact with the public when they're sent back to work and they're going to be the people who are going to get sick. And then also additionally, and this is an important point, that a lot of these people, and we're talking about just poor people in general, poor and working class people, um, because of our healthcare system and because of the fact that they don't have access to regular preventative care and because of the fact that poverty takes a toll on the body, have underlying health conditions that actually make them more susceptible to serious illness or death if they do contract coronavirus. So like I said before, this is a triple threat. And um, ultimately, you're right. This is going to fall 
on the shoulders of the poor and the working class, which of course in our society means people of color. Um, and it's, um, and there are, and the, you know, professional, the professional class, which, you know, the sort of professional, even the professional echelons of the working class, uh, many of us are going to be allowed to stay at home and work at home through the crisis. That means that we're going to be shielded. We also tend to be the people who are able to cover our rent in the event of a sudden loss of income. And we are also the same people who have access to decent health insurance. So you can see that essentially reopening the economy is a death sentence for the people who are already living on the edge in our society. Well, now it's time for News You Can Use, a special feature of this program. If you can't pay your rent on August 1st, or if you know people who are going to have trouble paying their rent on August 1st, that does not mean that you or they have to move out on August 1st. Don't just leave there's a lot of things that you can do. Eviction is a long legal process, and you don't actually have to move out until there's been a legal finding against you and an official officer of the law arrives to carry out an order of eviction. You can stay that long, and in the meantime, you should try to negotiate with your landlord. Landlords are often in debt, too, on their property, and if they can't make their payments, they're going to lose their properties to banks or somebody else. So maybe you can negotiate delayed payments, reduced payments, postponed payments, and it helps to get a lawyer because lawyers cost landlords money and landlords don't like to spend money. Fighting eviction is going to become a big thing in America on August 1st, and there's a lot of ways to fight eviction. It's not exactly a socialist program, but it's certainly a kind of intermediate program, wouldn't you say? I, I would, and I think it's also important for people to know that there are tenants' rights organizations in most major cities. They're not everywhere throughout the United States, but you should look and see if there's a tenants' rights organization near where you live, because they can fill you in on the details. They can help you understand your options. Landlords are often banking on the fact that you don't actually know what your options are. In a lot of places, and especially, for example, in California, um, there are, you know, halfway decent renter protection laws. It's just that landlords are relying on the fact that people don't actually know how they work and don't know that they can actually turn to them. And so when they give you an eviction notice, you move out and you don't try to fight back. And that's what they want. So, uh, you know, call up a tenants' rights organization and see if they can help plug you in, um, give, give you a sense of your options. And if you know other people who are facing eviction, make sure that they have this information ready as well. So that's our news you can use segment for this week. But the housing crisis is going to continue. And we need to also think big what do you think we need to go to make progress in the housing crisis? In general, to make progress in the housing crisis, the gold standard for me as a socialist, and I'm a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, so this is the perspective advanced from that corner of our um, political spectrum. It, the gold standard is social housing. It is we need to uh, you know, invest public money in building mixed income social housing that people want to live in. Instead of building terrible public housing that is um, you know, neglected and unpleasant to inhabit and uh, you know, starving funding for it under the guise of actually, as Ben Carson, as, as um, HUD chief, 
put it to try to give people the kick in the ass that they need to to go make something of themselves this kind of punitive relationship to public housing is is not something that we want in public housing we want to we want to spend public money to make beautiful social housing that people want to live in uh, we can also design these in, in ways that are, you know, community oriented. Obviously, the very, very gold standard would be if you were to look, for example, at, at, at the example of Red Vienna. This was the sort of interwar Viennese uh, social housing. I mean, they had nurseries and libraries and communal laundries and schools. And, you know, you can create real communities out of public housing, out of social housing. Um, that's something that we should be looking toward in the long term, but in the near term, just using public money to build social housing to offset the housing crisis is really critical. Megan Day, she wrote about the coming pandemic-induced eviction crisis for Jacobin. Thank you, Megan. Thank you, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe online to our print and digital magazine at thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe with this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners. You can get digital access to all our articles for less than $1.50 a month. Or you can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. That's at thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe, one word. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.